So our standard model is 10-year holds. We do our figures estimating that the investors will get their all their funds back within five years, but we try to refinance in about three years. Okay. So if, as long as we get refinanced within, say, five years, then the numbers, assuming no major catastrophes or anything like that, the numbers will be pretty close to as originally planned. Obviously, if we refinance in three to five years, the ROI is going to be even higher because, over the life of the project because the capital will be in there for a lot, lot less time. Um, so I, I often say to people, I'm more interested in velocity on money and driving the ROI than necessarily uh, that monthly cash flow. Because I think too many people get concerned with getting that you know, $500 a month cash flow You are listening to the Savvy Real Estate Investor Show, the podcast dedicated to empowering you to invest for your family's future. Listen in to learn about different strategies successful investors use to live their best lives. Whether you are starting out on your real estate wealth building journey or a seasoned investor looking for the next unfair advantage, this is the show for you. Each conversation will help you be more savvy when it comes to understanding how to leverage real estate to achieve your goals and live an extraordinary life. Your host is none other than seasoned investors and power couple, Jose and Khadija Jafferji, founders of the Savvy Real Estate Group, where we have been helping passive investors grow their wealth and getting them one step closer to financial freedom since 2008. Hey, fellow Savvy Real Estate investors, we have Andrew Brennan on our show today. Uh, now, I met Andrew Brennan uh, almost about 10 years ago and was truly inspired by his success. He was the only o Ontario local investor that I knew who was buying multifamily and had over 100 units. Andrew today is nothing short of impressive and now owns a real estate portfolio valued at over $100 million, made up of over 800 units in southwestern Ontario. He works primarily with the joint venture strategy and creates win-win uh, relationships with uh, him and his partners. And they also manage all of their units in-house. Yeah, we were able to talk to Andrew about how he's able to acquire properties, especially with the heated market conditions we've had here in Ontario, and even how he's able to compete with some of the larger REITs and organizations out there to basically acquire his properties. If you've thought about making the transition from single-family to multifamily investments, this is definitely the episode for you. So stay tuned and uh, have a listen. Hey, Andrew, thanks for coming on our show today. We are so pumped to have you here and really excited about the conversation that we're going to have today. For those who don't know Andrew, you know, he's, a, he's an inspiration to us. So what I want to know is, Andrew... You know, what are you up to right now? What What's the day in the life of Andrew look like? Um, right now, I'm just working on trying to keep building the portfolio, trying to raise uh, funds from investors. I don't do much of the day-to-day -day management, so I just work on strategic things for the direction of the company. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, what a lot of entrepreneurs aspire to get at, to a point where, uh, you know, just before we got on here, you were telling us uh, about some traveling you've been doing throughout the winter as well, right? Yes. Uh, I don't like the cold. So the benefit of real estate is, um, you know, if you're not self-managing and things like that, you have flexibility of location. So I've been definitely taking advantage of that. 
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, tell us how, when you got started in real estate and, and what made you even buy your first property? Okay, so I got started, I'm going to say around 2007. What it was, I had a couple of kids. I was living in, in Orangeville. And I started dating a lady that lived in Wasaga Beach who had three children. So we needed to, uh, you know, we ended up getting married in that. So we needed to blend the families together. And both houses were not big enough. So I ended up selling mine. We were thinking about selling the one she was living in. But a realtor suggested that we rent it out. And I had never heard of anything about real estate, about renting it out or making money. I didn't know anybody that owned a rental. But I sat down and I looked at the numbers after talking with the agent and I thought this makes perfect sense. So our first rental was actually one that we, or my wife at the time, actually owned. Um, and then from there, I ended up buying a few more single family homes around where I lived. Um, and then, that, so that was like for maybe a year and a half, two years. And then I ended up getting downsized during 2009. And then I just became a full-time investor. Yeah, so it was it was almost by accident, I guess, right? Yes, it was. I mean, um, I don't want to say I'm lucky, but I was just I got the benefit of someone making a suggestion to me, and I actually just you know kind of looked into the situation a little bit. So I did take some initiative, but someone definitely helped open the door for me to to realize this was a a very effective way to uh, you know to pay the bills, have fun, and not worry about financial needs going forward. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, maybe take us back then. So 2009, you, you know, exited from your, I'm assuming it was a corporate, corporate job. Um, and then delved right into full-time investments. And at that time, it sounds like you were buying more single family properties. Um, you know, now you're known more for your, your multifamily acquisitions. Um, how did you make that transition and when did that happen? Well, so when I was downsized, I had like five single family homes. I was actually in the process of buying a, a duplex when I did end up losing my job. Um, I just realized that, you know, the more units, the better. Uh, to be honest, I wish I would have started with larger multifamily uh, much sooner than I did. But I, I did realize that, you know, if I get more units and I buy a duplex, it wasn't that much more expensive than buying a single family home up in the Simcoe County area. So that's when I started to do that to do. And I started to specialize in like two to four units. And the other thing, um, I could no longer get a, a mortgage in that. So I started raising money, but I also needed to now be splitting, say 50% of the profits. So I need better returns. And, you know, single family homes at the time were great for speculation of future growth, but they're not exactly the best for cash flow. So that was a nat natural transition to, to getting a higher ROI. Perfect. And maybe for our listeners, explain, you know, the strategy that you use to raise capital. Uh, for example, um, assuming you're using the joint venture structure and and w what what that is. Yeah, for the longest time, I would just, um, I kind of went around to friends and family with very little success. Uh, my first joint venture partner was actually my neighbor and he had some properties at the time. I remember we were here one time for Super Bowl and the agent I used for my first few properties was here and we were talking about real estate and stuff like that. And my neighbor was here. And then I found out like six months later, he actually ended up buying some properties. Um, he came to me and he said that he liked the concept, but he was a police detective at the time or whatever. 
and he um, didn't have time with two young children. So he became my first joint venture partner. And then it was, it's funny, it just kind of snowballs because then it was the, uh, I used a different realtor. He was showing me these houses, see me buying stuff. And then he, be, he wanted to become a partner. So we bought a few with them. Um, and then it was just a lot of referrals. I, I, I really, for the longest time, I didn't spend any money on marketing. Um, I would do the odd podcast. I, you know, I did a, like a TV appearance and as I built up a little bit of momentum. Um, you know, I paid a small referral fee to people, you know, 500 bucks if, you know, someone bought a property with me or something like that. And that was, uh, serving well for a long, long time. And it was probably maybe eight or even 10 years before I actually had to get, uh, too official with, um, marketing and stuff like that. So actually we have a full-time marketing lady now, uh, you know, we, we try and put systems in place with more traditional, higher volume people in my position or like um, companies do. Right. But a lot of it was just uh, a good deal. And most people say I'm a good salesperson. It's funny because I always thought I was a horrible salesperson, but the only time I can really sell is when my passion for real estate comes out. I couldn't sell any, I couldn't sell like a a heater to an Eskimo, but I can sell real estate uh, investments to some people with, through my passion. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, I guess because it is a it's hard to convince somebody to join venture when I'm sure at the beginning of your career, you were you were faced with uh, people saying, hey, um, why why would I want to join venture? I can just go buy a property on my own. Right. True. So I like I had one investor who had that exact scenario. He had like 100, 120 grand or something like that. And he's like, oh, I can buy a house and, you know, I don't need someone like you. I said, well, I can guarantee you I can get at least two houses or two properties. And so you'll have at least two halves makes a, makes a whole one and you won't do any of the work. And I was able to, with VTBs and fix and refinance, recycle his, I think he ended up maybe putting like 150000 or something like that, recycling his money into like five houses, right? And, you know... When you can, if you have a good deal and you lay out the numbers, people will sometimes get over the fact that I don't put any money in and, you know, get them to focus on what their return is and how hands off it can be for them. So, and there's the same, like a great deal will find the money. Yeah, for sure. And I guess it's that, you know, you're, you're providing value, right? It's not, um, and once people see that value for what you bring to the table, then it's it's obviously a no brainer. So, um, you know, maybe take us now forward to the present. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about what your what your company looks like and what you guys are investing in. And um, you know, you you have quite, built quite a large portfolio, which I think is absolutely amazing, especially in the Ontario market as it is. So, maybe share a little bit of that. Actually, with- yeah. Why don't you tell us what uh, what's the size of the portfolio <laughs> that? Um- currently looks like so we're around 800 units um now we have a policy we don't buy anything less than 10 units and maybe that still might be a little bit too low I, at one point i got up to over i was gonna say it's probably like 130 properties a lot of the duplexes through fourplexes and just create a lot of logistics problems so we've been trying to get out of some of the smaller stuff and buying bigger stuff um we've become i guess integrated we have um property management company with a location in Midland and a location in Kingston. And we have our own renovation company and, you know, in the same locations. 
Um, we're trying to build the property management business a little bit. Uh, I, have a, I have a target of um, like 2,000 units I want to get under management. I would love to own all those. I'm hoping to own probably maybe 14 or 1,500 of that 2,000 in the next few years. Um, but I do have a business partner that takes care of a lot of the boots on the ground. So that's fantastic. Um, and now for me, it's basically trying to um, raise capital, keep investors happy uh, and, and find find uh, deals and work with agents and things like that. Right. Uh, there's, always, there's always a lot of moving parts going on. Enjoy li- and enjoy life. And of course, go off to Mexico and yeah. Uh... The sun. <laughs> My phone and internet connection works pretty good there most most of the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I guess the, what what I want to know is, um, you know, Ontario is an interesting market, right? Especially right now, and we're not building, we're not building apartments here anymore, and the transaction volume is not the highest. Um, how are you able to acquire deals? How are you able to compete with some of the larger players out there? Um, you know, what's your secret to being able to find, you know, the deals that you have? Well, there's a couple of things. You need to have um, some good agents working for you. I do have a very good agent uh, that's been trying to find me stuff along the, the eastern part of the 401 corridor around Kingston. Um, but also you'd be surprised. Success leads to future calls, right? We did a package deal last uh, summer. It was 202 units. After that, I started getting something like once a week, people were sending me stuff just like out of the blue, right? Um, So, you know, we don't spend, we haven't spent much time yet trying to find off-market stuff, although we have bought some stuff off-market. But, you know, we were able to buy maybe 11 or 12 buildings, 10 units and up last year, um, mostly through... Uh, either reputation or uh, an agent that was trying to pound the pavement to find stuff for us. Wow. Yeah. And, and so you would say majority of your, your deals have come through your relationship with brokers. Yeah. I mean, this, to be honest, I don't really even look at the MLS. Um, like I do maybe occasionally just to see what, you know, what's out there, but I don't have, you know, I've been, I would say now I feel like I'm in a drought because I don't have any opportunities right in front of me, although I'm still waiting to close on three buildings, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I know it sounds sounds horrible, but um, you know, so it it comes and goes. So I've been like, last year was really good year. We bought like $55 million worth of real estate. So I didn't even really have time to worry about trying to find stuff um, off market or things like that, because there wasn't any, let's say, downtime um, to, to actually have to worry about trying to find something. Right. But the, I can tell the, the competition's heating up, um, you know, even over the last, um, it seems like everybody's getting out of the more traditional areas and get into some of the smaller areas and the competitions, you know, heating up. Like I think one property I bought last year had 18 offers on it on the MLS or whatever. So it was insane. Yeah, that is crazy. For a, 20, so, for a 20 unit building, that is pretty high amount of offers. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty high. It's almost like the single family bidding that's going on, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's absolutely nuts out there. Um, so, I would say the other problem is it's not that opportunities aren't coming to me. I would say realistic pricing yes. along with the opportunities. Because yeah, people are sending me stuff. Like someone sent me something that, you know, 
downtown old commercial in a smaller town. They want four cap rate. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Right. And, and I think the seller's expectations have, uh, have changed dramatically and they, they all think they are sitting on gold. So, you know, that's, that's pushing up the prices. Yeah. And I guess traditionally multifamily has always been valued based on cap rates. Whereas now it, the sellers don't, it, that's like, it's like, that's out the window, right? It's like, Oh, per unit. This is what the this is what it's selling per unit in my area. You know, I want you know three hundred k per unit or two hundred. It doesn't matter what the rent roll looks like. It doesn't matter what the unit like. They don't seem to understand that. So that's the we're finding that. I don't know about you, but that that's something that's been going on. Uh, absolutely, um, it, you're right. Nobody seems to focus on cap rate because the cap rate's not in their favor as the seller. Right? They just want oh. So for example, we bought uh, those two hundred two units. Uh, we bought last summer. I ended up just, uh, I'm closing at the end of the month of the 24 unit right beside one of the buildings we bought. Exact same, everything. We bought the other ones on, you know, the, the it was a package of 202 units. So they were, they gave a rough idea of what they wanted per unit. Um, and they were saying, this is roughly what the cap rate is going to be, right? But it wasn't all about the per unit, but it was also about the cap rate. Now that I buy that's 24 unit closing this month, it was never about the cap rate. It was always about the per door cost the seller wanted. Right. And uh, he, he didn't even have it priced, but talking with the agent, it's like, well, he wants this much per door. Well, okay. But, you know, um, we do, we do cash for keys for a lot of our purchases. So we don't mind sometimes paying a per door cost or paying a cap rate that is considered low, especially in say the eyes of the bank, as long as there's some upside, it just requires more capital upfront and, you know, things like that. So. Right. Yeah, actually, I, you know, that 200 in unit deal is a monster deal. <laughs> Maybe take us through that deal as to how you found it. And, and, you know, was there, I'm assuming there was competition with some other bigger players on that too. Um, sure. And then um, how you tackle that such a large purchase. I'm assuming that's probably the biggest deal of your career. So far, yes. Yes. Um, now, as a package, yes, but not the biggest building that we bought. Like we we just uh, we just bought a ninety four unit building, right? But so to be honest, I don't even know how this how the broker got my name. I got a call out of the blue, and the guy said, "I got this package. I heard you might be interested in." I'm like, "Okay, fine." And I remember he said, "Like, yeah, we've got it out to a few people, and offer submissions are like four days. Yeah, we realized we didn't send it to you with you know reasonable amount of time. I mean, fine." So I made an offer and there was, I think there was four offers. And so I didn't get it and like, ah, crap. And like six weeks later, I got a call and the guy said, yeah, the other offer fell through. Are you still interested? I said, yeah. And I, so I went up a little bit of my price. Um, they were very sensitive about the timeline to get closed. And he says, you got to like meet these timelines. So, which was a bit of a challenge. So basically it was seven buildings making up six titles for 202 units. And we ended up needing to raise about 8 million, maybe eight and a half million from investors. Right. So we did that. I was, I don't want to say I'm very lucky, but I, I work with first national a lot and first national actually has a, not, it has to get approved, but it's not, it's not always uh, the case, but it's not, often it's just a rubber stamp. They actually do, a bridge loan until CMC kicks in. 
So the issue was the, the seller wanted to close in like 90 days. So we had to work through that. But we were able to get First National to do 90% of the bridge loan. And I was able to get the seller to do the, the difference between 90% that the bridge will usually be and what CMHC will fund. So I got a $2.6 million VTB from the seller for like four months just for the CMHC loan to kick in. So we had to work on that. It was a... Uh, it was a lot of moving parts just because of the amount of was, was six titles at once. Um, there was some fire code issues just before closing that came up that delayed things. So um, happy to say it all worked out. We're, we're still even dealing with a couple issues of, of trying to finalize all the books and everything like that. Because by the time we got through the bridge mortgages and the fire code issues and all that stuff, it was just, it was like, uh, you know, it took a lot of my time, but it was a, it was a fantastic deal. Yeah. Wow. So it, um, it's just crazy how you were able to juggle so many deals and yeah. Um, yeah. We're, we're in funny, awe. At, at yeah. one point, <laughs> the, the, the VP of uh, First National actually, actually said to me, we're impressed how much you got going on. I'm like, well, that's fantastic, right? I'm just a little guy, right? So, well, in my eyes, right? But yeah, for sure. So, um, explain to us. Uh, you know, you talked about that eight million dollar raise. Um, are you? Is it still a joint venture structure? Are you doing a, a GPLP structure? How how would you raise funds for such a large project? They they were joint venture because it was six titles. We we didn't have more than say five or seven person on any particular one, right? Um, I'll be honest, like two of the buildings, um, me and Quentin and Chris actually kept. So we like using our own funds. So we actually ended up raising that 8 million was just for the four, four of the units or sorry, for the buildings. Um, but we were lucky the smallest building, we raised money from one person, right? So it was over a million bucks that individual put in. And then the other three were split probably between about, I'm going to say maybe 18 or 20 people. So we were, you know, there wasn't a worry about going over, say, 10 investors or anything like that and having to get into like an LP situation. Right. Yeah. And the question I had for you as well was, um, you know, obviously many of the buildings you're buying, you're purchasing to reposition. So there's a period of time whereby there's no cash flow on those buildings or a limited cash flow, perhaps. Is that is that accurate? Uh, yes and no. So, I mean, for one, the bank will make us have a debt coverage ratio often of like 1.3. And it's just depends on, uh, each particular property, whether we're going to distribute cash flow and how fast. So most of the time we're telling investors now that we'll start doing cash flow in say 12 to 18 months. But I'll be honest, like a lot of times, um, we are focused more on value growth, right? Uh, like doing cash for keys, stuff like that. Yeah. Or like, for example, the 94 unit one we purchased in Kingston, we're buying at like 5.2 cap rate, which is really good for the area. Um, so we're probably buying with, depending on, you know, three to $5 million in equity. So that one's not so much of a, a repositioning as opposed to, you know, let a little bit of time will go by and then we'll just go back to the bank and refinance based on the actual value, not be capped by the actual purchase price, percentage of the purchase price. Yeah. So investors are comfortable with a longer term vision and understanding that, you know, these are equity plays as well as, um, you know, eventually getting cash flow returns from these properties. So our standard model is 10 year hold, 
we do our figures estimating that the investors will get their all their funds back within five years, but we try to refinance in about three years. Okay. So if, as long as we get refinanced within say five years, then the numbers, assuming no major catastrophes or anything like that, the numbers will be pretty close to as originally planned. Obviously, if we refinance in three to five years, the ROI is going to be even higher because, over the life of the project because the capital will be in there for a lot, lot less time. Um, so I, I, I often say to people, I'm more interested in velocity on money and driving the ROI than necessarily uh, that monthly cash flow. Because I think too many people get concerned with getting that you know $500 a month cash flow payment instead of getting you know $50,000 in uh, either their capital back or in a, above what the actual invested capital is, because that fifty thousand would also be like tax free, right? Like, like for example, I'm, I'm I'm wrapping up a refinance with a with one of my older investors, not older in age, but older that we have um, five or six um, duplexes, and we're in the we're in the middle of pulling out um, about a million bucks from those. Okay, now. You know what? Yeah, there's been some up and ups and downs, and you know, not always getting cash flow and stuff like that. But I'd rather have you know half of that million bucks than you know that my five hundred or thousand bucks consistently, right? So, and that and that's tax free money when we pull it out, right? So, yeah, and and so maybe uh, how is it the typical? You know, twenty four months kind of strategy. You get a bridge loan, and then a CMHC uh, loan after that? No, our bridge loans are usually two to four months, right? Oh, that's it, eh? That's it. Um, because, well, what we do is, there's a couple of things when you look at CMHC. A lot of people don't want to go to CMHC right away. But you can, you can get a 35 or 40-year amortization, um, which really helps your debt coverage ratio, okay? You can get 85% loan to value. So, for example, um, that. 94 unit we're buying in Kingston, we are getting a full 85% loan to value. Okay. Um, and so yes, we'll have to pay CMHC fees, but it usually comes with a slightly better interest rate. And the, the, usually the trade-off with paying the CMHC fees is about the four-year time, time frame. Okay. And there's nothing to stop you from getting a second mortgage with CMHC. Um, after you drive rents up and stuff like that, the interest rate is probably about a half a point higher than what you would pay on a first, right? And so if, if I wanted to, let's say, you know, if, if I bought something and I was going to, for two years, uh, let's say I borrow a couple of million bucks for two years, and then I go to CMHC for a new first mortgage. Well, I have to reinsure all that all that money with CMHC, and I didn't get any of the benefits of being with CMHC along the way. But if I do it up front and I want to go from a couple million bucks to say five million bucks, I only have to insure the extra money that I get from CMC on top of the original first mortgage that they already had. So there's some savings down the road in fees there, right? So like going back to getting the the bridge, it's usually because nowadays CMC got really behind in their ability to process a file. And what was supposed to be like four to six weeks long time ago got up to four months. And most sellers don't want to wait four months, especially after you've removed conditions, right? Um, so as far as I know of uh, the big banks um, or traditional financial commercial lenders, um, First National is the only one that actually does a bridge for you. And they'll bridge 
10% of what they think CMC will, will fund. So it gives us a lot more flexibility in uh, negotiating because if, if I wouldn't have gotten, or if I didn't know that I could have got a bridge mortgage for those 202 units, I never would have got the deal because there's no way the seller was going to wait. Right. It ends up costing me an extra, maybe 20 grand to file like a, a building or whatever purchase. But it, you know, it's when you're talking like, you know, that, that transaction was 33 million or whatever, it, you know, times six, 120 grand to, to get the flexibility and from the bank and, and pay their fees or whatever is well worth it. Right. Yeah. So after, when do you actually refinance um, the property? It's a trade-off. Um, so smaller stuff, it just depends, you know, it is getting harder to do. I can't do as many as I would like, without a doubt. The the 5.25 qualifying has been a bit of a problem. We had a lot of investors that um, had a, more than five with CIBC because you used to be allowed to get 10 and they changed that policy. So we have a lot of some investors that have been, say, stuck. Uh, and can't refinance. But when it comes to the building, um, it's a trade-off between how much we think we can get back uh, and how long it's been. So for example, I'm trying to work through a refinance on a 12-unit building. We've had it for uh, just under three years and we were able to get the rents up enough that going from a traditional uh, mortgage, um, because the, the loan was under a million bucks, so some some commercial guys don't want to touch that. Um, so we went f- with a loan, uh, traditional, we only got like 70% loan to value, but we were able to turn over the rent roll. And now is the time where we get back a couple hundred grand more than we actually put in. So we trade off between, do we try and get one more unit to turn over and maybe get the building value up another hundred grand, or is this good enough? We'll take the money now and move on to something else. Right. But ideally we, we would like to get it done within three years on the larger stuff. And are you uh, selling off some of your smaller properties, like, you know, singles, duplexes and stuff like that? Yeah, I think I sold maybe 18 or so last year. And I'll probably end up selling maybe a dozen or 15 this year, I think. Yeah, just move on to your the bigger deals, right? Because they're so much more easier to manage and refinance. Yeah, that, that's what we're finding as well, personally. We're, we're in the middle of doing the same thing with selling off a few of our smaller properties to buy some bigger properties. And because of, you know, the requirements of uh, qualifying at 5.25, we're finding that some of our, even if we refinance, there's still too much debt equity in them. Like we might only be getting say 60 or 65% loan to value. Right. So there's a, you know, there's an extra 200,000 that we can't get or something like that. Right. Yeah, for sure. And so Andrew, maybe talk to us just a little bit about how you've managed to keep everything in-house and how that's been beneficial to your organization. There's a lot of people out there who use external property managers, um, GCs to do work. Um, It sounds to me like everything's being done in-house. Maybe talk to us a little bit about that and, and how you manage that because that in and of itself is another organization within an organization. Yeah, I'll be honest. So that that side of the business falls to my business partner. Okay. So he does a fantastic job now. So what ended up happening was for a while we were self-managing and then I handed stuff over to another, uh, to a third party property management company, which didn't do very well at all. Um, and they ended up cost me a lot of money, uh, and just poor service and high vacancies. And so I, I had a coaching client that, um, 
we bought a couple buildings together and we got along really well. We went on vacation together. We went, you know, drinking together at the bar, having, just having fun. And I'm like, you know what? You don't need me as a business partner and I don't need you, but we sure have a lot of fun. Let's do this together. So I guess the natural role was I had already had a face with uh, raising money and investors and stuff like that. And he was, uh, his career was, um, he was in the garbage business where he was the guy that would come around, come and turn around a company like as a consultant and do things like that. So he's a natural fit on some of the day-to-day activities. So I'll be honest, he takes care of it and he's done a fabulous job, um, you know, building out a new office in Kingston. Uh, he's, Tremendous hard work he's put into it that has allowed me to, you know, be stress-free from some of those things and just kind of do what, focus what I, what I do. Right. Um, but taking control, it definitely helps because we can make whatever we want a priority as opposed to the being priorities being set by another, you know, someone else's third party company. And it allows us to interact and um, better with the JV partners because if there's a problem, they'll know they know that I can like address it, right? So it gives us a lot more credibility. And you know, it just um, for for us, it's it's not about like making extra profit or whatever. It's just about being able to um, keep control of, of the situation and, and make sure everybody is going in the same direction to, to growth. Yeah, no, hundred percent, and and we actually are also vertically integrated as well, and and we we went through the same issues. We couldn't find a reliable property manager, and and especially with the repositioning strategy, you know, uh, they're just not equipped to do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have the same structure as you, albeit on a smaller scale, but uh, we, we do have everything in-house as well, our own staff who do everything. So it's, I think it's, it's, it's really valuable, exactly what you said in terms of maintaining control, uh, not so much necessarily as a profitability move. It's a lot of cost savings actually come along with it because we're saving, we're saving our dollars, right? Um, you know, it's easy. I always say it's easy for someone else to spend my money, right? But now when, it, when it's done in-house and someone has to face the owner, if that money's wasted or that, you know, they screwed something up too, too serious, right? You know, it's, it's a little bit different. So your primary role right now in your organization is, you know, finding deals, uh, raising capital, uh, analyzing the deals. Would you say that's correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so basically, I pretty much do everything until we actually close. Right. Um, once we close, it gets kind of handed over to uh, to the other side of the business, for lack of better wording. So, any, insurance, lawyers, banking, um, like mortgages, uh, cash management. Even after closing, I guess I do that. Um, and interaction with investors and, and realtors is pretty much the, the hat I wear. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, Andrew, you mentioned you had some big goals. I mean, it sounds like you want to maybe more than double or maybe even triple your current portfolio. Um, what is it that keeps you motivated? Uh, how do you keep yourself motivated? And and you know, uh, maybe share your secret. Like you're, you're you have no plans of slowing down. <laughs> well, I'll be honest. I mean, uh, I don't think you've ever you know, slowed when, down. Yes. When when you start off in the business, often it's for something somewhat related to financial success, whether it be, I want to quit my day job. I want to pay for kids education, or I just want a great, uh, say retirement package. 
that only lasts so long because once you do well, you, those needs are taken care of. Um, excuse me. I would say that the best satisfaction I get is, is actually interacting with people, um, like-minded people and just the, the, um, you know, getting deals done or just the ins and outs. I'm, I'm a numbers guy and I love money. Right. So the two go hand in hand with real estate. And, um, like I, you know, I was running a mastermind session the other day and I said to people, basically I work for free because any more money I'll make going forward, I'll never spend, but I still do it because I love it. Right. Um, so I don't necessarily, you know, say I have to have $50,000 a month in cash flow or whatever like that. I just, I know that I have to do something. I can't just sit around and, <laughs> and do nothing. Right. So I'm doing the thing I love. And if I, you know, if I get to 25,000 units, so be it. If I don't, it's okay. Right. Um, I, I like, I like getting, I like helping others get to their financial goals. And that's what gives me great satisfaction when, when I, you know, I, I really enjoy when I'm able to say, email a investor and say, Hey, you know what? We were able to pay another tenant to leave so we can turn the rental roll over and the building just went up a hundred grand. Right. And they, they might get, you know, their net worth might be, you know, 25% of that has gone up. Like they might go up 25 grand that particular day. Right. So that's what I really like doing. Yeah. So maybe, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious to know, you mentioned the cash flow key strategy. Uh, once you take over a building, what is it, uh, what's your next few steps or the next few months look like? So when we talk about cash for keys, most people think, oh, you're paying a poor performing tenant to leave. So they owe you money or their headache. And that's not, we, we do do that, but that's not what we actually um, have as a strategy. So we look to turn the rent roll over. So I'll give you an example. Um, we bought a 20 unit building where the rent roll was now they were saying the rent roll was like 34,000. I thought it was worth like 32,000 market rents, but the actual rents were 17,000. Okay. So the first thing we do is we see if there's any problem tenants. And we also look at, of course the, sorry, we look at what people are paying compared to market. And we look at there's problem tenants and are there any tenants on assistance? So ODSP and OW, and I know that sounds bad, but I'll explain that. Um, and then we look at, we don't go after, say, the guy or gal that has the greatest amount of rent under market. We, we kind of work our way up in what we expect to have to pay people to leave. So, you know, if someone say maybe 200 bucks under market, we may not even make it a priority at the time, just depending on how many units are. But let's say that person that's 200 under market, we would offer somewhere around 5,000 bucks. So I do have a standing policy with the property management guys and gals. If for any reason a tenant's unhappy or pain in the butt, whatever, without even coming back to the office, you have permission to offer them 3000 bucks for every $100 their rent is under market. Okay. So let's go back to the tenant with 200 bucks under market. We offer them five, 500 sorry, 5,000 to leave. Because, you know, if someone's 500 under market, they're not going to leave for 5,000. It might take 15,000. So we don't go to the first person and say, here's 15,000 to leave. Everybody else in the building hears that. And now we got to pay everybody 15,000. Okay. The other thing is when I, I said about people on ODSP and OW, often they are entitled to like a, a rental uh, amount uh, under their benefits or whatever. 
right? So they may be paying, let's say, I don't know, eight hundred dollars for a month in rent, but they're actually entitled to a thousand. So they might be uh, in a position where if we offer them, say, five thousand, leave cash. We don't tell anybody that we paid them cash. We don't have to tell, you know, if you tell your caseworker, that's your problem. They're often more likely to go because they know they're putting $5,000 in their pocket and they're just going to have the rent increase for the next place covered by their assistance program anyways. Okay. So we, you know, we work our way through the building, gradually raising how much we offer people. Okay. We've done stuff like, okay, you don't want to leave. How about we'll give you a payment. We just raise your rent. You sign a new lease at a higher rent amount. We did one where the, the guy, oh, I like living here. Yeah, the apartment's all run down, blah, blah, blah. We sent him to a hotel for two weeks, paid for by us, and we renovated his unit, gave him some cash, and he signed a new lease for you know a couple hundred bucks more per, per month, right? Things like that. Um, so if you, if you know how to calculate building value in the commercial world, it's all done on NOI. And as we raise rents, we increase our NOI and multiply it or divide, I guess, Technically, by the cap rate and the building value goes up. So, if you're in a four cap area and you raise someone's rent a hundred bucks, you've just made twenty five thousand dollars in your building value. So that's why we do cash for keys. Yeah, and and that's um, that's why I love uh, you know the uh, commercial real estate, especially uh, multifamily, because of that uh, value multiplier. Yeah. I mean, the thing is when you, when you're say doing a fix and refinance or something on, or even a tenant turns over on a, like a fourplex and you want to refinance, there are some factors based on the property itself, but often you're compared to the fourplex down the street or, you know, uh, other side of town. And if that was a piece of crap or had really bad tenants, you know, the appraisers that's doing comps, he doesn't know all the details about the other property. He doesn't know why it sold for so cheap. But you're, you're somewhat limited now based on the other sales. Where in commercial, it's like, okay, what's your NOI and what's the cap rate for the area? You can't control the cap rate for the area, but you can, to a certain extent, control your NOI. And it's a calculation. It's, it's you know, you can pretty much determine what you're going to get. And a building sale right next door with the exact same building sold for half the price is not going to impact you because maybe their their NOI was half, right? Yeah. What, what I'm, I'm curious to know how what your your organization looks like your team like how many uh st- staff members you have including your property management and construction side uh from what i hear not enough it's really it's really hard to hire people um well let me see i mostly interact with my personal assistant and the marketing gal and a project management gal but i think we have well see my two kids work for the company um how'd you convince them to do that that's a good question. They actually moved four hours away to go work for the company. Wow. Right. So I don't That's know. Amazing. My daughter, my daughter loves working for the property management company and my son loves the paint. Although my son, my son's off uh, injured at the moment, but um, I would say there's probably 15 or 18 people. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. That's a that's a healthy size organization. That's amazing, so, Andrew. The, the, here's the thing, right? This is how often, like, this is how I stay out of the the trenches, if you want to call it the the active day to day business. Um, I came back from uh, down south about a month ago. Heard we had hired some people, and I live about half hour away from our main office. And I went in there one day and there's three strangers looking at me like, who the hell is this guy? Just walked in and walked past us all like he owns the place. And (laughs) I'm like, 
I guess we got new staff. I said to my, uh, one of the people in the back, I guess we got new staff, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So that's how often I get involved with it. With it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. And uh, that, that is truly a owning, uh, you know, the, the, the true definition of owning a business, um, where your, your organization is growing without you even knowing. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and also <laughs> with, they must hate me sometimes because it's like, you know, oh, yeah, you got to take on this 24-unit building. I'm like, oh, we just got caught up. Like, we're trying to get caught up. I'm like, well, that's the way <laughs> yeah. it goes, right? Yeah, here he goes again. Soon. yeah. No, but I mean, I think that that's also why you've been able to grow is because you've been able to focus on the things that you love and the things that you're good at and able to, you know, obviously in-house, but still be able to delegate the rest of the work to, to, to your staff. And it's all about the staff. I mean, without them, I wouldn't be able to do what I do because um, tenant management is a challenge, let's say, uh, and a definitely a landlord motivation killer that when you're no longer need to do something for financial purposes and you, if I got the resistance of the day-to-day activities, especially when it's my money that I see them waste, right? Uh, or not pay for rent. Uh, I probably would have checked out from the game a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I'm, I wanted to know in terms of your future goals, you know, have you considered uh, maybe investing in other provinces or uh, just because, you know, the way our market is and perhaps, you know, down south? Yeah, I, I get asked this quite often, actually. And, you know, what I, my thought is, I may go, say, down south or to another market with higher cap rates when I'm done. And w- what I mean by that is when I don't want to buy any more buildings or drive any more, uh, you know, turning over units for cash cash for keys, is because I'd rather be in a market with a lower cap rate and drive those units being turned over to, to actually get more profitability than going to, say, the U.S. and be in like an eight cap rate area where the cash flow is great. But when a tenant who, you know, moves that was 500 bucks under market rents, building only goes up, say, you know, 50 grand instead of 150 grand, right? So at the moment, I have no thoughts of branching out, just um, mainly focusing around the 401 corridor from like uh, Belleville to Kingston. Although I like I've, I've told people like you know, I'm not. I'm not going to buy. I say a 10 unit building way out in say London when when I got nobody out there and, and even using a property manager, someone has to manage the manager. But I'd buy a 50 unit building out there, right? It's worth its while, right? But no, no thoughts on getting out of the you know the golden horseshoe or whatever at the moment. Awesome. So yeah, we've uh, we we could talk to you for a lot longer. There's so many more questions we could ask, um, but uh, we're we're coming to the end of our time here. So just before we wrap up, we we like to ask our guests, um, you know, and 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 the reason we ask this question is it just tells us so much about you know who you are and and your beliefs. But I know it's a kind of a cliche question, but is there a quote or a certain saying that you live by or that it, in, you know embodies your your practice in business or life in general that you, you would be willing to share? Um, the only one I probably would actually say, which is not necessarily always great, but I think I'm known for my quote, I don't get out of bed unless it makes 30% per year. I use that one all the time. <laughs> from a, from a uh, you know, a uh, a life point of view from a personal point of view. No, nah, I wouldn't say I'd have a particular quote. 
Yeah, I know. Andrew, you're, you're so inspiring. And uh, Jose and I, like I said, we were really looking forward to this interview and you've, you've shared so many amazing um, pieces of information. If there's people who are listening who would like to get in touch or to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, obviously, you um, work with investors and uh, your, your, your great wealth of knowledge as well. Um, how can people reach out? You can just find me at Andrew at uh, palmtreecapital.ca. Right, just drop me, drop me an email or whatever. Yeah, you can find me on the socials, but I gotta be honest, I delegate that. I don't know <laughs> really, but if you find me on Facebook or LinkedIn, I think I'm on Instagram. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> my marketing gal takes care of that, so if you see me there, you'll see. You can just you know message me there, and she'll let me know. Okay, for sure. True delegation. <laughs> yeah, that is exactly true delegation. <laughs> Hundred percent. Um, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, you've been such an inspiration uh, to me in my earlier in my career as well. Uh, just watching you grow was uh, was, you know, I I told myself I want to be like Andrew one day. You know? <laughs> oh, I appreciate the kind words. Yeah, and you're, it sounds like you're doing great yourself. So you know, keep going. Yeah, awesome. Thanks. thanks, Andrew. All right. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on the Savvy Real Estate Investor Show. Make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If you liked this episode, please write a review and share it with us. We are getting the show up and running right now, so every message, every review, and every note counts. This show exists to showcase how investors at any level can start using and leverage real estate to become savvy wealth builders. If you want to learn more about how we can potentially help you create more passive income and build your wealth faster, go to www.savvyrealestateinvestor.com. Once again, it's www.savvyrealestateinvestor.com. All right, that's a wrap. We can't wait to hang out with you on the next episode.